Uh, um, uh, uh, Melissa, thank you for your prayer um, and, and the reminder that uh, this time of crisis has not just been difficulties, but uh, the new blessings as well. And uh, I gotta admit, uh, I, I you know, there's a, uh, I, I definitely miss being together, especially singing together. But I've really been enjoying some of the new additions to our worship because of the, this format. Um, really like to see the kids and, and see their enthusiasm for word, uh, for praise. And personally, I, I'm kind of challenged by uh, Weba's uh, PowerPoints, you know. <laughs> I, I realize I got to up my game a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, try to kind of, you know, do this up to Pastor Paul's standard, but not have to worry about my PowerPoints as well, you know. I'm sure uh, Mo feels the same way about just watching the enthusiasm of the kids and, and the praising as well. But uh, anyway. Um, the title of the message I want to give today is called The Crisis, The Cross, and The Call. And uh, uh, last night I added the, the fourth line, part one, because I realized there's way too much for me to cover here. So I hope, uh, God willing, that I'll have a chance down the road one day. But I wanted to look at some insights from Joel chapter one to three and from Acts chapter two. Uh, some of you, I'm, I'm sure many of you remember that uh, in, in the heart of Paul's uh, on Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two was a reference to Joel. And uh, actually, before that, I was, I've been thinking about Joel when Pastor Paul asked me to share about something on the pandemic. So I'm really glad that it seems maybe it's the Holy Spirit bringing all these messages together. So let me uh, uh, yeah, start. Um, okay, I'm going to yeah, I, I do this a little bit differently today. Um, the quote that keeps coming to my mind as I try to process the pandemic was this uh, quote that I, I uh, gosh, heard about no, 25 years ago, I think. Um, from this uh, a scholar, a well-known uh, Old Testament scholar, specialist in the book of Psalms named Walter Brueggemann. This is what he says. He says, our life consists in moving with God in terms of, one, being securely oriented, being painfully disoriented, and being surprisingly reoriented. Um, these three words, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, uh, what uh, Brueggemann argues actually classifies all the 150 Psalms into these three categories. And in fact, many of the songs have the, and, and uh, a few weeks ago um, in our house church, uh, one of our dear members just uh, talk, was talking about how disorienting his, his pastor has been. And he said, you know, he said, I've really been blessed by reading through songs these times. As he finds his life disoriented, he's finding new orientation, new path through the psalms. So that's what uh, just, I kept coming back to my mind as I was thinking about this message. And I pray that, uh, that, that this is something that happens not only during this time of worship today, but uh, that, that through this crisis, we'll try to organize our life around these concepts of orientation, disorientation, and the hope that our life will be more, in a surprising way, reoriented towards God, as we see in the book of Psalms. Now, one of the ways that uh, I think our society is kind of reorienting is that this crisis is bringing about clarity in terms of what is really essential in life? What is really essential in society? So a term that I've never ever heard of before this, essential workers, now it's in the vocabulary of everybody. And, and Time Magazine uh, a few weeks ago did a series and it highlighted 12 of these so-called essential workers. And I really didn't know about it because I don't read Time Magazine, but uh, in the Dallas Morning News, it was like in one of their, uh, 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 it, it was also profiled in Dallas Morning News because one of the 12 people who was profiled, the lady, in the middle of her uh, top corner, Yolanda Fisher, is actually from Dallas. And when we think about, you know, essential workers, we think about people like, you know, people in their scrubs, medical people, ambulance drivers. Uh, the guy on the right, I'm not sure, I think is an engineer, like some of our engineers are essential, essential workers like John and Hayun. And, 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 uh, and Yolanda. So I, I, um, uh, before I go in there, so the title is very interesting. The Times titled the series, Heroes of the Front Lines, Stories of courageous workers risking their own lives to save ours. Now, I don't, you don't need to be uh, somebody you know, uh, who's gone through seminary. I think just even this concept of people, courageous people risking their own lives to save others, it rings a lot of bells for, for a lot of us, right, the Christians. And, and when I dug into the story of this lady, I discover even more, the, the title, I mean, for life. It's an honor to serve those who really need it. She's a cafeteria worker in uh, Bowman Elementary in uh, middle school in Dallas. When I saw the title, it left no doubt in my mind. This person for sure is a disciple of Christ. And she is. So this 
important part of the story. The story begins with her talking about her fears. She says, I'm very nervous. I have two grandchildren at home, age four and nine. I can harm my family if I bring something home. She continues. My daughter at one point said, mom, you're older. Older people are dying. You can stay home. It's very reasonable. But I was like, nah, Jesus was a server. That's my purpose. That's why I've been in this business for 26 years. Most people look at us as a cafeteria lady. I look at you as a service. Her and our team of five have been working every day, um, 6.30 to 5 in the morning to 5 o'clock, making meals not only for uh, the students, but for everybody in that impoverished area of Dallas. Uh, according to DISD, they've made over a million meals so far during this crisis. Um, when I saw this, and especially a quote, that Jesus was a server, that's my purpose. That basically is my message today. So what I want us to think about is, I know that like a lot of you, um, perhaps, and, and myself for sure, when this started unfolding, the, the question that I wanted to ask was, and the question that I was asking was not, it was what is God's purpose for the pandemic, right? What's, what, what is God doing? What's his purpose? As I further reflect and read examples like Yolanda, Yolanda I realized that the, the, the right question is not, and the focus is not what is God's purpose for the, uh, for the pandemic, but what is God's purpose for us in the pandemic? And I pray that that's what all of us will walk away thinking more. Not the questions that we may not be able to answer, but the questions that we ought to ask and we ought to answer for ourselves. What is my purpose? What is our purpose in this pandemic that, that we don't know what's gonna happen? With that in mind, let's jump into Joel chapter one. And in Joel chapter one, immediately you see a crisis. It's not quite a pandemic like ours, but it's, it's got many points, as you'll see, that connect to us. So here's how it begins. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? You can relate to that. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now, just a few quick comments. Book of Joel is second of 12 or what is known as the minor prophets. These are the last 12 books of the Bible. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it's a single book that consists of 12 uh, 12 of these prophecies, prophets. And, uh, and, and the only real background we have is the first line, the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. And unlike people like Jonah or even uh, 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 Hosea, we don't really have any background who Joel was, where he lived, when he lived. Scholars estimate that he lived between 800 to 400 BC. And for these reasons, it's very challenging for interpretation and application beyond the fact that uh, prophecy in general is difficult because it's not so much literary, but it's also figurative and apocalyptic language. Now, what we know for sure from here is that there is this, a locust plague, and it's not just ordinary locust plague that's you know sweep through this area every year, but it is what we call generational, something that happens once in a generation, like this pandemic that we're experiencing. And the key to understanding, and I believe what the Lord wants us to take from here, is not maybe the necessary details of exactly what happened, but the biblical context of this prophecy. And that's what we're gonna spend some time delving into today. Oh, by the way, the, the young locusts, great locusts, I mean, English only have one name for lo locusts. In Hebrew, there's like 20 something. And every one of these locusts, the four that are named here, are, they are different. Part of it is because they're so affected by these locusts. In fact, it just so happens right now, some of you are aware of this, in, the, in uh, East Africa, going to Central Africa, all the way to Pakistan and China, there's a huge, another one of these once in a generation type of locust pandemic, the locust uh, uh, plague that's going on. You, this, you, you can Google and this picture is from National Geographic a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. And it was interesting uh, how they described it. They said, a plague of locusts has descended on East Africa. They use the word plague and the biblical word plague. But then they, they add a kind of a modern twist. Climate change maybe we blame, you know? Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. I actually Googled 10 plagues of Egypt because one of them is a locust. And the first entry that I got from Google was, yeah, it's, it's probably due to uh, you know, climate change, right? <laughs> anyway, so what we see here um, about this pandemic was just how devastating it was as it continues to unfold. 
And, and, and the prophet begins to uh, make a call to people to respond to the pandemic, or, or I'm sorry, to, to, this, to, to this crisis. And, and the first thing that he does is that he calls people to lament. This is what Pastor Paul reminded us in N.T. Wright's article a few weeks ago. Here's what he says. He says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Well, all you drinkers of wine, well, because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of lioness. It has laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off the bark, thrown it away, leaving their branches wide. Even the prophet himself is affected by all of this. Mourn, in other versions, lament, like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, will you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the, of the field is destroyed. Again, just a couple of quick observations. Notice that everyone is affected. When he says drunkards and to the priests, it's, it's, you know, he's describing the bookends, right? The lowest to the highest, the most moral to the least moral. Everyone is affected, doesn't matter. And that's what a pandemic is, everyone is affected. So yes, everyone is affected from the drunkards to the priests. Everyone is uh, called to lament, right? Um, again, even in this pandemic, some people are getting off better than the other, but it's interesting. Everyone should lament, not because they, they may or may not be affected, because everyone around them are affected as well. And so in, in that way, this is a reminder of our sure plight. Notice what the uh, uh, prophet says. He says, my land, my vines. And I think he's talking not only about his personal. He may not be, he may not be a farmer. He may not be affected. But he's thinking about everyone around and sees that they're in the same common plight. And, and the one good thing that can emerge out of a crisis like this, especially when people begin to see that this as a common problem, is that there is a unity that can emerge out of this. So here's one thing I'm going to just pause a little bit to think about, which is that crisis, like what we're experiencing, can lead to a rise of compassion, camaraderie, and solidarity. And we've seen this in other critical events like 9-11. But we've also seen that it can also just as easily spawn selfishness, divisions, and further spoilage. Uh, I, during the pandemic, one of the, one of the other blessings has been that my, uh, my daughter Hannah at home a lot. You know, now she's, uh, she's been baking a lot, making cookies and cakes for us. I've been thinking about this yeast imagery. And what I realized that, that perhaps that, that hearts that are in lament are more susceptible to the leavening effect of special agents. Meaning that just like yeast, when it's, low, when it's in a certain temperature, can rise because of the presence of the yeast. I feel like perhaps this crisis has put us individually and as a society in a place where small things like yeast can really cause a great positive impact. And I want us to think about that because I want us to think about pandemic as not something that we just have to get through or something that is devastating us, but perhaps an opportunity for something special to happen. Continuing on, uh, uh, there is a now, he moves on from a, a lament to a special call to one specific member of society, the priest. He says, the vine is dried up, the fig is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. And then the net effect of everything is people's joy is withered away. Now priests may not be the, uh, they're not necessarily involved in the ministry of agriculture, but they are ministers of people's souls. And so Joel specifically mentions and talks to the priests and calls them out. And he says, put on sackcloth, you priests and mourn. Will you who minister before the altar? Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. The grain offering and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Notice the repetition. In fact, three times, priests are reminded of their identity as those who, as those who minister. It's the same word in Greek, in Hebrew, as the word server. Just like what Ms. Yolanda said, the priests are reminded of the specific special duty and a call as priests to minister before the Lord in behalf of the souls of the nation. 
And so they're summoned to their priestly duty. And, and, and specifically, it occurs in response to people's hopelessness and despair. But notice this, the first step that Joel says is for them to, uh, to make a personal, spiritual preparation before God. That's why he says, come, spend the night in sackcloth. Before you try to do anything else for other people, come, spend the night in sackcloth. Lament, pray, cry out to God. And once you're spiritually prepared, then there's a second step in fulfilling their calling. They are called to exhort people to call upon the name of the Lord. So Joel goes on, he says, declare a holy fast to the priest, call a, a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord Yahweh, your God, and cry out to the Lord, the covenant of God, revealed to Moses. And alas, for that day, for the, Lord, uh, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, jewel and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clouds. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain is dried up. How the cattle mourn, moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. I just couldn't help but go back a little bit and think about Jonah and God's care for the animals in chapter 4. To you, Lord, the prophet, now first person, he calls out, says, I call. The fire has devoured the pasture in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pasture in the wilderness. In the midst of all the description of the devastation that has happened in this land, um, notice what the priests are called to do. First of all, they're called not to solve people's problems because they can't. They can't solve the locust or the agriculture or the famine problem. But there's something else they're specially called to do. First, they're called to point to the Lord who can. Their job is to point people to the Lord, away from their eyes just on the crisis at hand. Second, they're called to exhort people to call upon him. Even as they call upon him, it's not enough that they go before the Lord. What really needs to happen is that they not only model, but they need to go and, re and, and, and challenge and invite people for themselves to call upon God. And third, they're called to intercede for them before him. And that's the, the last part. When, when, when Joel exemplifies after telling the priest to declare a fast and intercede, he himself says, to you, O Lord, I call. So this, so this, uh, this three-pronged uh, uh, duties of the priest to point to the Lord, to exhort people to call upon him, plead for them. Again, I highlight this because I, I think you can see the connection to our own very purpose. Going on, there's actually something else that goes on that's a little bit subtle. In the middle of this, he says, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, all of a sudden, this ideal comes in, and, and this is what I mean by understanding the, 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 the biblical context of this message. The first word that clues us that something is off is the word alas, because alas is a, is a description of, of a woe. It's, 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 it's a cry of, uh, of help. It says, alas for the day. What day? What's the day of the Lord that's near? He goes on, the seeds are shriveled. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so... If you were an Israelite familiar with the word of God and the history, history of the time, you need the historical background, not only from Israel, from the Middle East, is that the day of the Lord is, is usually a special day where, where the great king of their time would have this decisive one-day intervention against the disobedient battle of vassal state. Now, the, the, immediate, the immediate example that came to mind was uh, King Alexander. Some of you know where into history know that in about 300 BC, there was a decisive one-day battle between uh, Alexander the Great and Darius, the king of Persia, in one day in northern Iraq um, that determined the course of civilization. And, and the day of the Lord is this decisive one-day battle of the great king. In, in terms of the Bible, here's a definition from the Jewish virtual library, a definite though undetermined point of time in the future when God is expected to punish the wicked and justice will triumph. God will indeed act suddenly, decisively, and directly in a single day with vehemence 
and terror. Whoa, somebody's what's happening there. Okay. Uh oh, I don't know what happened there. Anyway. Um, now, the Israel's point of reference for um, uh, for the day of the Lord is actually in Exodus chapter fourteen. So this is a time when the Israelites have left Egypt, and then they're, they're what is, what's in front of them is the um, uh, uh, is the is the Red Sea. What's behind them is the Pharaoh, angry Pharaoh, pursuing them, and people are in terror. And Moses stands up and says, "Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today, this day, that day." This is what Joel is referring to. And it goes on in that chapter. Uh, uh, God says, as Moses cries out, God says, "The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen." So within this day, again, was this idea of glory, God being glorified through His judgment. But that's only half the story. The other one is God's glory through deliverance. Um, Moses goes on and, and says, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This pattern of God decisively inter intervening uh, for his people, judging the evil nations around them and rescuing and delivering Israel, is something that happens from Exodus on. You see that through Joshua, through Judges, and especially in the life of David. But something happens that's different in the, in, in the, in the prophets. And Joel is one of the first ones, if not the first one, to get it. Here's what he says. He says, when he says, alas for the day, at that time, the expectation is like, oh, good, God's going to come and rescue us when the day of the Lord is near. But the NIV does a slight mistranslation. ESP does better. Here's a surprising part. It says, that day will, be, will come as destruction from the Almighty. And as the context will make it clear, the, the really surprising part is that it is not the locusts or the Assyrians or the enemies of Israel that are doomed for destruction. It is Israel itself because of their wickedness. And this is a turning point uh, in, uh, in, in biblical history. Um, now, here's the second point of reference. When he begins uh, to list out all the impact of the locusts, he's not just choosing random words. He's actually pointing people back to the other critical point in their history, which is Deuteronomy 28, the final address of Moses to the nation. Uh, um, this is what uh, Pastor Paul refers to as the Deuteronomic uh, blessings and curses. Chapter 28 begins with the list of blessings for obedience. It begins, if you fully obey, Moses is telling the Israelites nation, and carefully follow all his commandments, I will give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. And it lists all kinds of prosperity. By the way, the word, this is where we get the idea of the prosperity gospel, the false prosperity gospel that's so prevalent. The idea that if we do the right things, God's going to bless us physically. Right? And then it goes on to the next part. The second half is the curses for disobedience. Now, prosperity gospel will talk about that. But you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink, drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You'll have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go away into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over your trees and the crops of your land. See, God isn't just saying something new to Joel, and Joel isn't just saying random descriptions of this crisis. He's, he's reflecting upon and causing people to remember the covenant and the, and the uh, of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. That's the biblical context. Now, at this point, there's another thing that happens. It's a prophetic, uh, in chapter two, as we go on, uh, there's a, a, what I call the emergency alert, like we get for Amber Alert these days, right? He says, blow the trumpet, the shofar, the great big ram horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill, that all who live in the land tremble because the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor Will, it, will it be in the ages to come. 
Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like a garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over mountain tops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Now, at this point, one of the reasons, again, why this is difficult to understand is we're not quite sure. Is he talking about still the locust plague or is he talking about using the, the metaphor of the locust plague to talk about the invasion of a great army like the Assyrians that are about to overtake Israel? Probably the latter in this chapter because what we see is that this is not exactly the same as chapter one. In chapter one, we saw the locust, or, but what we're kind of seeing here is the actual invasion of a human army, possibly the Babylonian Assyrians. And again, even not even quite about the timing, the first chapter was in the past tense. Uh, but in this one, it's near future, or it could be a distant future, because of the descriptions like never was an army like this in the ancient times, nor ever in the ages to come. Is this historical, or is this what we call eschatological, or the end time, the apocalyptic uh, thing that's going to happen at the end time? We're not quite sure, right? So we can't make too much of that. But we can see, as we continue to read, uh, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish, every face turns pale, they charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers, they all march in line, not swerving from uh, their course, they do not jostle with each other, each marches straight ahead, they plunge through defenses without breaking ranks, they rush upon the city, they run along the wall, they climb into houses like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars are no longer shine. And here's this amazing, in the midst of this terror, here's what he said, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. This is his army, not the Assyrians. Not the Assyrians or the locals, these are his army, he says. The army that is coming, that is, is intent on destruction, is the Lord's army. His forces, the Lord's forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his, God's command. And at this point, he exclaims, the day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. And then here's this haunting question, who can endure? Who can endure such great judgment from the Almighty God and his wrath against sin? At this point, there's a, a, something else happens. There's a prophetic call for intercession and repentance. Even now, here God speaks for the first time. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, and mourning. And Joel adds on, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The echoes again of God's to Moses when he gave his covenant in Yahweh. And the echoes of books like Jonah, where we see the same thing happening. Who knows? Like the king of Jonah, uh, king of Jonah said, he may return and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offering and drink offerings to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children even, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom have, uh, leave his room and the brighter chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord be between the portal and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Notice, again, is a renewed call for priests to step up and to intercede. But it is much more than an agricultural or economic unrest or devastation. Spare your people, he says, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a biot among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Notice again that this is a personal call to return to God. It's not just to merely follow the provisions of the time. Yes, when you return to God, you will obey his commands. But, but what God says is return to me, because it is him that people have met, not just not just uh, that, that they've uh, committed sins or neglected to obey God. Ultimately, every sin is a form of turning away from God and rejecting our relationship to him. So God declares a personal call to return to himself. And this, this appeal is based on the very essence or the name of God. We can uh, invite someone to, to, to return to God because we know, not because they're worthy, but because God is worthy, that God is a God who is gracious and compassionate. And then this is, again, something that was first revealed to Moses. And, and notice here, again, this is a universal offer and call. 
that, that as it echoes Jonah, this is, we realize it's not just about Israelites or non-Israelites. It's about all of us. None of us who can stand in the presence of God on the day of, his, uh, on, on the, day of the Lord. Now, there's a dramatic shift. We assume there is repentance. We don't know. But there's a dramatic shift. It says that the Lord, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. It's not that the people repented necessarily. It's the Lord uh, 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 relents because of his great mercy. As Jesus says, mercy triumphs over judgment. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I draw, I'll drive the northern horde from, far from you, uh, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks were drawn in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely, here's the response of the prophet, surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. So they're still facing, right? This, this eminent crisis. He says, do not be afraid, be glad and rejoice. Even in the midst of the pandemic, of the crisis of this invasion, he says, be glad and rejoice because surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, even the wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green, the trees are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine will yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God. Notice the threefold uh, 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 call to rejoice, uh, and, and in the same way, also to share this good news of God's mercy. For he has, been, he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The baths will overflow with new wine and oil. Now, the, this chapter continues to unfold. So after the call to rejoice, there's a, a surprising call for reorientation towards what I call God's, or what not, what John Piper calls God's future grace. He goes on and says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel. The echoes of, uh, 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 of Exodus again here. That I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. And afterward, afterwards, here's a passage, you know, from Acts chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is where it gets, oh, and it continues on and ends this. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Notice, first of all, here, again, there's a lot of things that are somewhat unclear or fuzzy, but notice a few of these important things. First of all, notice his future orientation. I will repay you, I will pour out, I will show you, right? Second, notice that the blessings are not just like something that we experience now. These are what we call kingdom or eschatological blessings. These are the blessings that properly belong in the kingdom of God. And the greatest blessing of all is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. That once we're satisfied with all the, you know, our fruits and everything being, you know, replenished, at that point we'll pour out the Spirit because that is the greatest blessing. And notice again in the last uh, the, the column, and everyone who calls him in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a universal offer. And it actually began historically in Acts chapter 2. What this says is that the day of the Lord in some sense has come. And we're living in the aftermath of it. But yet there's still another day of the Lord that will come. This is what scripture talks about. I mean, and the theologians talk about being living in the state of tension of already experiencing some of the kingdom blessings, but not fully yet. Now, I want to go back to the haunting message because that's that, you know, you know, that, you know, who can stand the day of the Lord is actually how the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi chapter three. Here's what uh, uh, God says. I will send my messenger, you know, this is going to John the Baptist, thank you, Reba, who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. He saw that a week before his, uh, the, Jesus' death on the cross. He comes to the temple and, cle and cleanses it. The messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, I.e., whom you desire will come, Jesus, God says. But look at the last sentence. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is that there's no one who can stand. There's only one person who can stand God's wrath against sin. And that's our, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the Deuteronomy chapter 24 law, by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He goes on, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentile, to Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's what this Paul is telling us. There are actually not just a single, there are many days of the Lord's throughout history. As I mentioned, the first one was Exodus, and that sets the background. The background of that, unfortunately, is that there's these blessings and curses depending on people's obedience. So that is what we call the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, Israel fell miserably. And so in 722 BC, Assyrians came like locusts and completely destroyed Israel and deported them and, and, and took them to middle, uh, other parts of the Middle East. And in, in 586 BC, the temple itself was destroyed, Jerusalem was sacked, and then the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity. This is what the scripture calls the former days or the Old Covenant. But the critical thing that happens is that right in between is the cross. I, I really wish that they were divided time, not according to the birth of Jesus, but according to the, the time of Jesus on the cross, because that's what truly divides history. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something new happens, and that is a new covenant, the latter days, as Peter calls it. In, in, in ascending to heaven, he sends us the Holy Spirit, who is finally able, for, uh, enables us to overcome the curse of the Deuteronomic law, because the law is written in our hearts. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual gifts that come through the Holy Spirit, by which we can obey the law, and so right now, we experience, we are beneficiaries of the fact that Jesus Christ, on the day of the Lord, on the, past, on the day, on Good Friday, endured the wrath of God. And God was glorified in his righteousness and in redemption through the cross. And now we live in the latter days. Yet there will be another day, the final day of the Lord, which the New Testament writers also call the day of Christ. When Jesus and, and, and in that time, not for to pay our sin on the cross and to offer us an invitation into the kingdom, but for the final judgment and the glory of God revealed in his anger against sin and, 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 and bringing the full realization of the kingdom of God. Now, there's another event, the destruction of Jerusalem in 7018. That actually chronologically was happened after the cross. But in terms of why it happened and how it happened, that actually is the last event of the Old Testament. Uh, uh, less uh, curses. Now, here's where I want to get back to our purpose. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24, in his final teaching of the disciples, when they ask him, when are you going to come back? When are all these things going to happen? The day of the Lord will come in full. Jesus says this, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What he means is that from the point that Jesus go, goes to the cross until the end of, in, in, end of age, We'll live through times of great pandemics, great crises, of persecution for Christians. Yes, there are times of peace, but the general characteristic of the time is pretty, pretty sad and pretty evil. But in the midst of all of that, his people, empowered by the Spirit, will continue in the pandemic, in the crisis, to preach the gospel as a testimony to all the nations and as an invitation for people to come and rest in him. So what is our purpose in the pandemic or no pandemic? It's the same. It's what we read last week. When people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Our first purpose for those of you who are still on the fence 
and have not fully What shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, true repentance is always followed by receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us then to be able to proclaim the gospel and fulfill our purpose in the pandemic. Because he says the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I know that there are those of us in here that are still trying to figure things out. And I pray that there's no better time than today to call upon the name of the Lord. With many others, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Now I wanna end with this um, story. This is something that, I forget how I, read, I, I saw this, but there was an article from The Atlantic. Maybe some of you have seen this. Many of you know Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? The, the, the NIH's uh, Director of Infectious Disease. Well, his boss, the NIH director, is a guy named Francis Collins. And this is in the Atlantic. You can Google his name and you can get the same article. Uh, now, it's, the subtitle is very interesting. Francis Collins speaks about coronavirus. That's why he was interviewed. But it also talks about his faith and his unusual friendship. And I'm going to read a big portions of this with you as our closing uh, exhortation and challenge. So here's Francis. He, here's Francis Collins. He became a Christian at 27 years old. So for 27 years, he was a VIP to somebody. Here's how it happens. Growing up, Collins' religious instruction was leading to being sent to the local Episcopal Church choir to learn music, instructed by, by my dad to ignore the rest of it, which I did. He loves music, he told me. So he went to college, church just to listen to music. In college and then graduate school, he found himself moving from the category of agnostic to atheist. Some of us made a journey. I would have challenged anybody who wanted to bring the conversion to the conversation some discussion about God. I would have asserted that they were basically stuck in some past era of supernaturalism that is no longer necessary because science has eliminated the need for it. This guy in his first year of medical school got a PhD in biochemistry. Um, um, is how he put it to me. But the time, author speaking, but the time came when as a third year medical student, some of you, in a lecture hall. He was sitting at the bedside of people with terrible illnesses. He was doing his uh, residency, most of which physicians had imperfect methods to be able to help. Watching those individual faiths, what was, going, uh, what, was going, what was going to be coming soon at the end of their lives, I was trying to imagine what I would do in those circumstances, Colin shared with me. This was in North Carolina. And there were a lot of wonderful individuals, many of them having had relatively simple lives, but lives that were totally dedicated to helping other people. Many of these people were deeply committed to faith. I was puzzled and unsettled to see how they approached something that I personally was pretty terrified about. They had peace and equanimity, and even a sort of sense of joyfulness that there was something beyond. I didn't know what to do with it. It made me realize that I had never really gone beyond the most superficial consideration of whether God exists or a serious consideration about what happens after we die. Collins told me about a patient he had gotten pretty attached to. She reminded me of my grandmother, he said, and who suffered from advanced cardiac disease, which included almost daily episodes of crushing chest pain. And yet she came through this all with remarkable peace and was very comfortable sharing the reason for that was with me, namely her faith in Jesus. And at one point, after one of these sharing moments, she looked at me in a quizzical way and said, you know, doctor, she didn't call me doctor, I wasn't yet. You have listened to me talk about my faith but you have never said, you never say anything. What do you believe? Just very direct, very simple question. And it was like a thunderclap. Like a realization that I could not walk away from. But that was the most important question I've ever been asked. And the story continues. This begins his journey, which ends with him becoming a believer at 27. Now here's his journey as a disciple. And I asked him how his faith, how he sees faith now in his late 60s compared to how he saw things in his late 20s. He told me, I think I've also arrived at a place where my faith has become a really strong support for dealing with life struggles. It took me a while, I think, that sense that God is sufficient and that I don't have to be strong in every circumstance. I found this striking, particularly in this moment of pandemic. One of my great, great puzzles when I first became a Christian is that verse, 
my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He told me that was so completely upside down for me. That to me, that's the greatest summary of the gospel. It is upside down. Everything is upside down in the gospel. Weakness, and now I embrace that with the fullness of everything around me. When I'm realizing that my strength is inadequate, whether it's coronavirus or some family crisis, that strength is always sufficient. That is such a great comfort, but it took me a long time to get to the point of really owning that one. Furthermore, to become someone who seeks after VIPs, listen to the story, a final story worth knowing about Francis Collins. The setting, a dinner following on October 11, 2007 between debate at Georgetown University between Christopher Hutchins, a prominent writer, a polemicist, and atheist. I think he wrote a book called God is Not Great, you know, He's, and Alistair McGrath, a theologian and Christian apologist from Northern Ireland. I attended the event as I, as I did Collins. When the dinner host opened things up, uh, up to questions from the audience, Collins, he stepped up and spoke up. He asked Hitchens uh, a question along the line of, if you're going to argue that there is no basis for human morality other than evolutionary response to survival, then one might argue that there is no objective moral grounding to good and evil, that these are actually mirages such that we've been hoodwinked into your evolutionary ancestors. By the way, this isn't original to his thinking. This is known as a moral argument for the existence of God. What do you say to that? Hitchens responded quickly and divisively, saying that he was shocked that one of the greatest scientific minds in the whole world would ask such a superficial and silly question, but not actually answering it. The audience, meanwhile, was taken aback by his rudeness, as I was, someone who was friendly with Hitchens. After the dinner broke up, now here's the persistent part. Collins sought out Hitchens to talk to him in a garden area in hopes of continuing the conversation. The story goes on of his growing contact with Hitchens until later, Hitchens himself in an article in Vanity, uh, until, I'm sorry, Hitchens uh, uh, catches a uh, you know, uh, life-ending uh, esophagus cancer. And their relationship continues. And at the end, here are, here's how it ends. Hitchens himself in an article in Vanity published, Vanity Fair published 15 before he, month before he died, referred to Collins as the best of the faithful. Wow. A great humanitarian and one of the greatest living Americans. His affection for the man who once treated with the same was undisguised. At the conclusion of my interview with Collins, I asked him what he was about the relation with Hitchens that was special. You know, I think it was the opportunity to see what lies underneath a very hard edge perspective that you normally be really puffed up by. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus sees us not as rebels and sinners, but as lost sheep. It's a reminder of the fact that if we really want to understand each other, we can't be put off by those kind of superficial, admittedly sometimes difficult to listen to perspectives. There is real humanity in everyone, the image of God in everyone. This was a guy who was intensely curious about everything. He was a guy who cared deeply about his wife and his daughter. He was a guy who was in many ways a little isolated, maybe a little lonely, who cherished the chance to develop a friendship. A friendship. And especially with someone who was very different from him. What we offer is friendship. We offer Christ, but without offering friendship, probably pointless. On Friday, April 20, 2012, at the memorial service for Hitchens, Collins spoke and played his Hitchens sonata on the piano that he composed especially for him. You can uh, see it on YouTube. It was a beautiful and touching moment, an act of friendship by a man of great grace. I cannot think of a better example of what it means to be a lover of VIPs in our context than this. Now, I still, I'm optimistic. I, 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 I want to think that at the last fading moment, Christopher Hitchens remembered the gospel and everything and he accepted Christ, but I don't know. I won't be surprised if I see Christopher, Christopher Hutchins in heaven. But even if I don't, I will still praise God for the kind of work that he does in sinners like myself and like Francis Collins. Quickly, the, what is our purpose in this pandemic as priests empowered by the spirit of God First, to seek to be generous, hospitable, and kind to all around us from a lamenting heart, a heart that is broken, a heart that truly sympathizes and empathizes and cares, not a, a proud, arrogant, standoffish kind of a religious heart, but a lamenting heart. Second, to seek God in prayer 
and to intercede for those around us before we even utter a word to them with understanding given by his word. We got to keep back, going back to the, uh, to, the, to, the, to the context, especially the cross for us as the people of the new covenant. And third, seek to name the name of the Lord. This is what the Lord did when she directly asked him, what about your faith? This is what Christ, uh, Francis Collins does when he stood up in the midst of this audience, you can imagine, and spoke for God to name the name of the Lord. Seek to name the name of the Lord in thanksgiving and in witness and also in encouragement. Point people to the one who can solve their problems. And, and, and here is the greatest part, because of what happened in Acts chapter 2, we can do so, not under our own wisdom and power, but be moved by the spirit that was in us. Yes, we can fulfill this purpose, not because of our own resources or wisdom, because of the spirit who has been so generously poured out into our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, just for the goodness of your word, of your mercy, and the power of your word that is like a lamp. Yes, these are very dark times indeed, but thank you for your word. I pray that you will continue to come back to you in prayer and the meditation of your word. And Lord, you will accomplish your purpose in us. There will be those who proclaim the name of Christ in all the spheres of our lives for everyone that is around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.